0: If you uh, have a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, January 1st marks the beginning of a new year, but I think most of us know or most of us function with the beginning of September as being the real start to the new year. Uh, whether it's because you've just gone back to school or you've gone back to the regular routine of work after summer holidays, um, September presents this opportunity to kind of recalibrate and re, you know, just get back in the routine of things, uh, to reset things. September also marks the beginning of a new ministry year for churches. Uh, That's how we function as a church, kids ministry and youth ministry and community groups and men's and women's Bible studies and everything else gets going in September, We do a party across the street as a way to signify this is a new ministry year. And by the way, you're all invited to uh, partake of pancakes and sausages and all that good stuff across the street. Whether you registered or not, please do come and and join us. It's a a great chance to meet some people. But we've been doing this uh, every year since we started. And we've now been in existence for 11 years as a church. Some of you have been here from day one. And there's a lot that has changed over the past 11 years. But there are some things that are exactly the same as they were on the day we planted this church 11 years ago. At least I hope there are some things that have remained exactly the same. Now some of you have been here a much shorter time than 11 years. Maybe you've been around for a couple of years. Maybe you've been around for a couple of months. Or maybe you've just been around a couple of Sundays. Or today might even be your first Sunday. But whether you've been here a long time or a short time, I think it's important to know what kind of church you are part of or what kind of church you are considering being a part of. So back in the spring, we finished preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this summer, I've been reading through, I was reading through the book of 2 Corinthians just in, in a devotional way. And I was so encouraged by Paul's love for the church And his message to the church in the city of Corinth. And there was one passage in particular that really caught my attention. And we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, You find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, As an aside, we're going to return to the Gospel of John next Sunday. But today we're spending our time looking at the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is God's word and this is what it says to us. It says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So sometimes as a family, when we sit down for dinner together, we we play these kind of impromptu conversational games, right? We'll do things like, you know, would you rather, or we'll say, you know, here's four things, three of them can stay, one has to go, right? It's like pancakes and waffles and French toast and crepes, right? You can only keep three. Pancakes are going, right? I mean, that's, that's my view. But but anyway, this, uh, this summer, we, we took a family vacation, and one of the kind of conversational games we played was what... Or What would you not do for a million dollars? So someone would present like a hypothetical scenario, daring activity, ethical dilemma, something like that, and then ask, would you do that for a million dollars? So we had some pretty interesting conversations about some of those scenarios. But at the end of the day, there are some things about which you ought to be able to say, I wouldn't do that no matter how much money was involved. And I think there are some similar commitments a church ought to make as well. There are some things we simply will not do, no matter how much money is involved, no matter how much pressure gets applied to us. So out of this passage, what I want to do is I want to highlight three things we will not do as a church. Now, I know that in general, we want to be known for what we are for more than for what we are against, Uh, but this is not a sort of, you know, we're anti-this and anti-that type of message. I, I, I took this message from the fact that three times in this passage, Paul says, we will not do this. Now, when I say there's three things we won't do as a church, I should preface it by saying, by God's grace. There are three things we won't do as a church, but that makes for a rather long title. Anyway, you get the idea. The first thing we won't do as a church is we will not lose heart. Now, here's one where we definitely need to say, by God's grace, we will not lose heart. Verse 1 says this. It says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The verb to lose heart means to shrink back or to lack courage or to become weary or to be afraid or to become discouraged or to lose one's motivation in continuing to do a desirable activity. There are lots of reasons that people lose heart. They face doubts, or discouragements, or criticisms, or some type of setback, and they feel like they just can't keep going. They lose heart. And I think we've all felt like that at times. Now, there aren't lots of books that I've read more than once, but one of them is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with the story, then you will know that it is an extended allegory. The protagonist of the story is a man aptly named Christian who is making his way to the celestial city or to heaven, and along the way, he encounters lots of different obstacles. One of the most memorable scenes in my mind is what happens when Christian and his traveling companion, Hopeful, take a shortcut and are captured by a giant named Despair. They're chained up in his castle. They're beaten, they're abused, they're chained in darkness, and Bunyan uses the imagery to portray the temptation to despair that comes into the life of every Christian at some point. If you're going to make it to the celestial city, you're going to have to learn how to deal with despair. You're going to have to learn how not to lose heart. Now the Apostle Paul who wrote these words, therefore we do not lose heart, was no stranger to setbacks and discouragements in ministry. Listen to what he says later in this chapter. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also or also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So Paul faced lots of different situations and circumstances that could have caused him to be crushed or driven to despair But the presence of Jesus meant that he did not lose heart. When we read a little bit further in chapter 4, we read this. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's point throughout this chapter is that though there are lots of things that might tempt us to lose heart or might tempt us to just kind of throw in the towel and pack it all in, we shouldn't do it because the stakes are so high. This is eternity at stake. But it's not just individuals who are tempted to lose heart at times. Paul's words here are written in the context of ministry. They're written to the church in Corinth. And I would just say that ministries and churches are not immune to the temptation to lose heart. The last two and a half years have presented lots of challenges to churches. I know lots of guys who have left ministry altogether. I know of several churches that have basically shuttered their doors. Every church I know has experienced tension. Every pastor I know can point to people who simply just stopped attending church altogether. Every church has had people who decided this was a time to move or this was a time to move on. And ministries feel that stuff deeply. And yet regardless of the source of discouragement, the commitment we ought to have is not to lose heart. Why not? What what was Paul's basis for not losing heart in ministry? What should our reason be? Well, I think the answer is found in the the first few words of verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The reason we do not lose heart is because we have been called and commissioned by God. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. Whatever ministry we have, we have because it's been entrusted to us By God. Now, this is true in a broad sense and a narrow sense. So, broadly speaking, every one of Jesus' followers has been commissioned by him to advance the kingdom of God. Most of us are familiar with what is often referred to as the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel where it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right. All authority, all nations, All that I've commanded you for all time. That's our commission. It's the universal commission we've been given. And because of that, we never need to shrink back. We never need to fear. It's not our place to proclaim the gospel. We never need to lose heart. But this call and commission from God is also true in a narrower sense. So I have the opportunity to meet with church planters and prospective church planters on a, on a regular basis, and one of the first things that I want to know about them, before I want to know about things like where they went to school and, and, and those sorts of things, is do they have a sense of calling? And this is really true of anyone in ministry. There's a reason older pastors will sometimes try to dissuade younger pastors from going into the ministry by saying things like, is there anything else you could see yourself doing? And the reason it's so important is because if you do not have a sense of calling, you'll be tempted to give up on it when things get difficult. So one of the jobs I had when I was putting myself through seminary was delivering bottled water. It was a very physical job. I was often exhausted at the end of the day. But you didn't have to deal with discouragement in quite the same way. I mean, I never met any customers who were like, look, you know what, I know drinking water is good for me, but I've just decided I'm going to stop drinking it. In the 25 years that I've been in ministry, there have been lots of days where I've just kind of had to sit and review God's call on my life or God's providence in the planting of this church. And some days it feels like that's all I've got. But that's enough. It's enough to know that we've been called and commissioned by God to do what we're doing. Now, this is not just about me. I mean, a church can feel this collectively. Sometimes you just get tired of swimming against the current of culture. You're tempted to lose heart. So if you were around when we back when we purchased this building, you will know that there was some backlash in the community. Lots of people chimed in with, "Look, I'd rather have a movie theater than a church." Even if they never went to said theater. But a year and a half ago, a church bought the Bowling Alley. That's a block away from us. The one we used to go to on, you know, New Year's Day or whatever as a as a church and go bowling. And the the local paper their article printed that CrossFit Church had bought the bowling alley. But well, We didn't, but you should have seen the comments on our Facebook page. Lots of people would much rather have a movie theater or a bowling alley than a church. Now, I'm not against bowling, I'm not against movies, but we do think that the church offers the only real hope for mankind. And as a church, we have the ministry we have by the mercy of God. God has called us and commissioned us. Therefore, we will not lose heart. So by God's grace, we will not lose heart. A second thing we won't do as a church is we will not tamper with God's word. And this is what we see in verses 2 to 4. Paul says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, when you read through the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole, you will discover there's a context to what Paul is saying. There were a number of prominent teachers who had come into the city of Corinth to exploit people. They had come with all sorts of fanfare, all sorts of cunning as a way to worm their hearts, worm their way into the hearts of the Corinthians. Now, part of their motivation was financial But these were the sorts of teachers who told the people exactly what they wanted to hear. They were the kinds of teachers Paul described elsewhere like this. He said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So it wasn't that these teachers didn't use the Bible as part of their teaching. It was that they manipulated it or they tampered with it as a way to make it say what they wanted it to say. And this is a problem that has not gone away. You don't have to read very far in the Bible before you can see people wanting to tamper with God's word, So the Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are lots of teachers who will tell you, well, that doesn't really sound very scientific or very sophisticated. So created means kind of oversaw it in a vague sort of way. Read a little further in Genesis 1, and we come across these words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female? I mean, come on, that's gender binary stuff. You can't go around saying that kind of thing. There are lots of people who will tamper with God's clear statement. Now, I know lots of teachers Lots of churches would push back and say, look, well, we believe all that's true, but we want to package the gospel in such a way that it's not going to offend modern sensibilities. The motivation for that might be pure. It might be out of a sincere desire to present the gospel in the most favorable light. I heard one prominent pastor describe his approach by saying that the Christian faith has A doctrines and B doctrines. And that you need to float the B doctrines across the river on top of the A doctrines and sort of obscure them, right? A doctrines, so highlight the truths people will gravitate to and obscure the ones they might find offensive. Now, I'm not questioning the motive, but the methodology. So I mentioned I do some work with prospective church planner. One of the things that they have to do at their assessment is they have to preach a short gospel message. They're given a text, they're given some time to prepare, and they preach a message before a room full of assessors. Think Shark Tank. That's kind of what it's, what it's like. The truth is, every one of them is given a softball text. I mean, here's the ball, it's on a tee, you just have to swing and make contact with it, and, and you can hit a home run. One of those prospective church planners was given this verse. This was the text. For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, you can get to the gospel from that text. But if your approach is, well, listen, I don't want to offend anyone, then you're going to spend your entire time talking about gifts, how they're free, how the best gift is eternal life. What you will not talk about is sin and death. But when you take that approach, you actually have no gospel to preach. And these verses speak to that very thing. Verses 3 and 4 say that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So in our human wisdom, we think, well, look, if, if we could just package the gospel in a little bit better way, a little bit more attractive way, a less offensive way, they would respond in mass numbers. But the truth is, we don't do anyone any favors. In fact, we do great harm trying to shield them from the fact that apart from accepting the gift of salvation that is offered in Jesus, they're condemned to death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. He goes on to say that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says it's foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. So if the message of the cross is seen as foolishness, why put it front and center? I mean, why not let it fade into the background, make some other point, or make the major point of emphasis some other aspect of Christian ethics? You know, love of neighbor, care for the poor. And the answer is because the heart of the gospel is wrapped up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to downplay those things is to tamper with God's word. So why should we commit ourselves to not tampering with God's word? I think the answer is found in verse 2. Paul says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and to God. The reason is because we know it's the truth. If we believe the Bible to be what it claims to be, the very word of God, then we have confidence to proclaim it as we should. Paul says that we commend ourselves by the open statement of the truth. So as a church, this means we will not avoid the difficult passages. Those passages might raise questions, but we think that's a good thing. Let's reason together. There's a touching scene that takes place when the Apostle Paul says goodbye to the church of Ephesus, knowing he would not see them again. Acts chapter 20 records that exchange like this. It says, and now, this is Paul speaking, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. everyone with tears. What Paul says to them is, look, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's our aim as a church as well. That's why we take the time to preach through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. So we will not lose heart. We will not tamper with God's word. And the third thing is we will not do, is that by God's grace, we will not preach ourselves. Verse 5 says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What we proclaim is not ourselves, You know, One of my favorite stories that came out of that period of time where we were just doing the live stream, we were not able to gather here like this. One of my favorite stories that happened during that period was an interaction that someone from our church had with someone who had just kind of stumbled upon our live stream. And this individual was telling their friend that they had started watching this church's live stream. He couldn't remember the name of the church, but most of the preaching was done by these two short guys. One older short guy and one younger short guy. Oh, is it Ridge Church? Yes, that's the one. I'm actually okay with being known as the older short guy who preaches about Jesus. In all honesty, I would rather have people walk out of here on a Sunday morning saying, what a great Savior, and have them say, what a great sermon. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I love our church. I happen to think it's a great church to be part of. I happily recommend it to people all the time. But there's a temptation that comes in the church world. There's a temptation to do lots of self-promotion. Now, I'm not against churches using marketing or social media, but there's a subtle danger that comes with some of that. And the danger is that we spend far more time building up our brand than we do actually building up God's kingdom. The cult of personality is a real thing. The church in Corinth had its own struggles with the cult of personality. The church in Corinth was plagued with problems, but it's interesting that the very first problem Paul addresses when he writes the, that letter is that the church was divided over their preference per, for particular teachers. Teachers, Paul says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul. And what Paul is saying is there's a danger that comes from building your faith or building your church around a celebrity pastor. A pastor friend of mine who is a great preacher had someone come up to his wife and say, oh, man, it must be so great being married to him. Now, his wife is a good pastor's wife, and she said, well, you know, he doesn't walk around the house giving little three-point sermons all the time. Look, people are drawn to people, especially people with lots of charisma or an outsized personality. But our goal is not to preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. There's a scene that takes place in Acts chapter 14 that illustrates the human propensity to put man on the pedestal instead of God. So Acts 14 records what happened when Paul and Barnabas came into the city of Lyconia and they healed a man who had been lame from birth. Here's what it says there. It says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian." The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This was always Paul's approach, to deflect attention away from himself and put that attention on Jesus. This is what the church ought to do. Now, maybe it seems like a silly question, but why should we make a a commitment not to preach ourselves? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 5. What it says is, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. We will not preach ourselves because we know we're just servants. And servants is a great word to describe what we're supposed to do. Most of you will know that Queen Elizabeth died this past week at the age of 96. She was just 25 years old when she became queen. She reigned for more than 70 years. She saw 15 different British prime ministers come and go. But what was remarkable about her reign was not just its length, but the tone of it. She made a pledge on her 21st birthday that set the tone for her reign. This is what she said. I declare before you, I declare before you all, that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. She, she understood her role in a way that few leaders do today. My whole life whether it be long or short shall be devoted to your service and what paul told the corinthians is we are your servants for jesus sake it's not just service for service sake it's a service for a greater cause this is what we're called to it's service for the kingdom of god The way I like to say it is is that it's not just that we've been saved from something, we've also been saved for something. That's the idea of verse 6, where it says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The idea is that those who have been made or remade in God's image are supposed to reflect that image to the world. So we have a mission statement at Crossridge Church. The mission of Crossridge Church is to know Jesus and to make Him known. So what does it mean to be part of Crossridge? It means to join that mission. So let's pray for effectiveness in that this morning. Father, we want to thank You that You have called us, you have commissioned us, you have placed us exactly where we're supposed to be, and we pray that we would simply be faithful to the calling that you've given us, that we would not shrink back, that we would not tamper with your word, that we would not present ourselves but point people to Jesus. Lord, would you help us be successful in that aim? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.